great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the history of economic thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. So it is lovely to have you here today. If I could just ask you to present yourself first, so that means just your name and where you're at. I'm Srishti Yadav. I'm an assistant professor in economics at Azim Premji University, which is located in Bangalore in India. Um, I'm a political economist very broadly. Uh, my interests are in Marxian political economy, particularly for the global south. Um, I have done my PhD from the new school and uh, yeah, we're broadly interested in sort of various strands and debates on heterodox economics. Wonderful. Thank you. So what was your PhD on? Right. So my PhD uh, was at the new school for social research in the New York. Um, Very broadly, I was interested in the agrarian question. Uh, The agrarian question, so it's a subset of uh, the literature around Marxist political economy, which broadly seeks to understand the relationship between what would have historically been pre-capitalist agriculture and a modernizing capitalist industry. Uh, So the agrarian question is essentially trying to understand the political, social, economic role of the countryside in the capitalist transformation of any um, country. Um, And I mean, so it has a long history, right from sort of Engels to the works of uh, Kotsky, Lenin, and then sort of various strands of literatures that emerged from that. Um, So for example, Engels was looking at the political relationship between a pre-capitalist peasantry and what that peasantry, what political role that peasantry would have in the sort of um, radical politics of the country as a whole. Uh, Kotsky and Lenin were more interested in trying to understand the social relationships, social relations of production in agriculture. So uh, looking at Russia and sort of Europe more broadly, was agriculture capitalist or not? These were the kind of questions that they were interested in. Um, then there's sort of a third strand of literature within the agrarian question that was active in the Soviet Union, which had to do with, well, what is going to be the role of agrarian surplus in the process of industrialization of the Soviet Union? Um, How exactly will agriculture support that process of the development of a large-scale industry uh, under the aegis of a socialist state? But so that then got broadened to what is called the classic agrarian question, uh, which is, The role of agrarian surplus as well as labor from agriculture, what is the role uh, that agriculture is going to play in the broader capitalist transformation of a country? So, broadening it from the Soviet context to sort of general capitalist transformation. Um, And then there's sort of more contemporary stands as well, where people argue that that classic agrarian question is actually not valid anymore because uh, for Uh, much of the global south, the prospect of structural transformation is kind of bypassed. 
this is sort of Henry Bernstein's argument is that structural transformation doesn't seem to be happening anymore. So the question of agrarian surplus within that doesn't quite hold. So it changes again, it changes the agrarian question. Um, so sort of uh, with that sort of uh, broad picture of what the agrarian question is, I was specifically interested in the agrarian question for India. So um, in my uh, dissertation, I tried to sort of understand post-independence Indian development as a series of phases of the agrarian question or resolutions of the agrarian question. So in different phases, what was the specific relationship between agriculture and our industrialization process? Um, that was sort of one part of uh, the work that I did. And then I also tried to look at the social relations of production and accumulation in agriculture today. Uh, and that I did through fieldwork. So I, I did, I conducted uh, primary research for that in a particular part of the country in Haryana um, and essentially tried to understand, so what are the relations of production? Who is actually laboring? Who has control over the production process? How is surplus being generated? Who is accumulating it? And what is it being used for? Um, and is it uh, is there a flow of surplus from agriculture to non-agriculture uh, and vice versa? So those were some of the questions that I was trying to um, understand. Oh, it's fascinating. <clears throat> I have so many questions about this. So how did you get into heterodox economics? Uh, right. So, I mean, in my... Um, early years of undergraduate education, I was exposed to very sort of run of the mill, standard neoclassical economic fare, you know, and I found it, A, I found it deeply boring. And B, I just thought it was incapable of explaining the world around me as I saw it. You know, growing up in India, you see around you a lot of poverty, inequality, you know, you see power operating all around you. Um, and it didn't seem like neoclassical economics could really explain any of that. Um, the, the kind of picture of the economy that neoclassical economics presented, it seemed like a fairy tale to me, you know, a sophisticated fairy tale, but a fairy tale nevertheless. Um, so I was ready to leave economics and uh, jump to sociology. Uh, but I got saved because in sort of the final year of my undergraduate, I had, uh, had the good fortune to take a course on classical political economy. And that course and the instructor of that course really um, a, made me see economics in a different way and realize that economics need not be only one thing, which I had been exposed to so far. Economics can be a whole range of perspectives on how to view, understand the economy uh, and be that there were some frameworks within economics that actually were much better at just explaining the world as it operated around me. And that's sort of how I got interested in heterodox economics. And then I just sort of pursued uh, programs uh, that offered heterodox economics training in sort of various institutions. So this is the Center for Economic Studies and Planning at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. 
that's where I went first. And from there, I went to the new school for social research in New York. Both of these are sort of, uh, you know, bastions of um, heterodox economics in their sort of respective contexts. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you're not the only one to have that kind of experience to kind of, uh, I, although I have to say, I, I, I didn't find it boring. I loved, <laughs> I loved all the models, but, um, and so you get to get, some of us get mesmerized by it as well. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I asked this question about heterodox economics because I heard you present at the um, history of economic thought conference in India and in Bangalore at your university a few weeks ago about your work on um, paradigms in economics. So could you tell us a little bit about this work? Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, some of this is sort of coming from uh, the kind of training that I've gotten in economics where I, I have had the opportunity to be exposed to various schools of thought within economics. Um, at the same time, when you see the operation of the discipline, you it's fairly evident that neoclassical economics is the dominant uh, school of thought within economics, right? And uh, so much so that for most students and practitioners of economics, neoclassical economics is economics. That is the way to understand the economy, to ask economic questions and to answer those questions and sort of the sort of prescriptions that emerge for solving economic problems are all sort of rooted within uh, neoclassical economics as a school of thought. Um, but there are other schools of economics schools of thought within economics that have different ways of looking at the economy, perceiving uh, the economy itself, and what are the constituent units within the economy, what is the appropriate sort of level of analysis at which to understand the economy. Um, different schools of thought have different ways of conceiving uh, what are sort of significant economic problems that need to be understood. Uh, different methods of how to understand these problems and therefore also different sort of solutions or prescriptions for these problems. They even have different ways of answering the question of what is economics, right? So what is economics according to classical political economy is very much not the same as what is economics according to neoclassical economics? They have very different epistemes as well. Um, and despite all of this, uh, the dominance of neoclassical economics and moreover, the fact that it persists despite all of its problems. So if, if you just take a cursory look at the history of neoclassical economics over the last uh, say 120 years or so, um, it has repeatedly come under attack for uh, the unrealisticness to some extent of its sort of central axioms and models, right? They are not able to explain the real world to a large extent. Um, there are big problems and um, yet it continues to dominate the economics discipline. It dominates uh, the top departments, the top journals, it dominates the top sort of economic societies and communities. Um, the 
big awards in economics are um you know typically going to sort of practitioners of the dominant paradigm um so it is very much at the top of the hierarchy uh, it is a powerful school of thought despite having a lot of problems uh so really the question that interested me was why is neoclassical economics dominant if we know that it has all of these problems which it keeps trying to tackle in a number of ways so whether it is the 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 literature around imperfect competition that starts from the 1930s or it is the perspective that came from keynes uh, after the great depression uh, or it is the whole imperfect information incomplete markets revolution in microeconomics in the 1970s all of these are different sort of ways in which neoclassical economics has tried to adapt to its various anomalies but those anomalies are not going anywhere uh, even with the great recession of 2007 or 8 there was sort of a big churning within the discipline um, because there was a lot of questions about why has economics not been able to predict but also understand this crisis right um and even though there was a lot of churning there wasn't really any big change in the discipline as such so neoclassical economics continues to dominate right um why is that so and really to understand uh, this question to understand the dominance of neoclassical economics um i was drawn to the work of thomas kuhn uh, in the philosophy of science and his idea of uh, paradigms in the operation of normal science so kuhn writes in 1962 his famous text called the structure of scientific revolutions which i saw recently is one of the 25 most cited texts in the social sciences um, but so he was actually writing for the natural sciences or the hard sciences quote unquote um, and his idea was essentially that science Uh, and he's really talking about physics chemistry biology right science operates in distinct watertight paradigms i e schools of thought which really cannot communicate with each other uh so these are completely watertight uh schools of thought which have their particular ways of uh perceiving problems uh coming up with methods to answer those problems and really they come up with a whole scope of their own discipline as well science operates in these paradigms in fact it progresses from one paradigm to the other uh and because paradigms are so different um that progress in science is not linear uh one paradigm sort of subsides because it has anomalies or its inability to answer sort of uh questions about the real world which shake up its fundamentals and another paradigm comes up which is able to answer these sort of fundamental questions but the next paradigm is going to have a completely different ontology epistemology methodology which means that it may not be able to answer everything that the first paradigm was so progress in science is not linear in that sense and also that paradigms cannot speak to each other so the movement from one paradigm to the other is not entirely based on merit quote unquote it's not that you can convince the practitioners of another paradigm about the merits of yours it's more the process is driven by factors that are more sociological 
Uh, it's about, you know, all kinds of factors which can include aesthetics. It can be personal preference. It can be all kinds of other factors. Um, and I found that to be sort of um, a, an interesting way to describe the functioning of economics uh, in that neoclassical economics does seem to be a dominant paradigm. It isn't, there is very little possibility of communication between paradigms in economics. Um, but to, uh, Thomas Kuhn's work is still not able to give us any insight into why neoclassical economics is dominant. Um, so Kuhn says that if a paradigm displays a lot of anomalies, it should be overtaken by another, which is able to answer those particular questions. Neoclassical economics leaves a lot of un unanswered questions with other paradigms are able to sort of take up, but um, we haven't really seen a scientific revolution in economics. So we still don't un quite understand why neoclassical economics continues to be this dominant. Is it because it's just the best way to answer the questions before us? I'm not sure. Is it uh, because it's the most well-developed of the existing paradigms? Well, maybe, but that's just because that's where most of the resources are. This is the paradigm that is dominant. Uh, so it would have the most number of practitioners, etc. Um, but I have this um, hunch that it's, uh, as Kuhn was arguing, this is perhaps more sociological and maybe even more political than he had argued that maybe neoclassical economics is really playing a political role in the sort of uh, validation of the capitalist system, which allows it to be the dominant paradigm and sort of create this picture of the capitalist economic system as being a non-antagonistic um, framework in which equilibrium can be attained and everyone can be at their optimal sort of uh, consumption slash production bundle, etc., etc. Um, so, yeah, I think that... Uh, uh, Paradigms are perhaps one interesting way to try to understand how economics functions. Now, of course, there's other ways to try to understand it, um, understand the philosophy of science for economics. Um, you could have uh, perspectives from, for example, Lakatosh or um, Feyerab and um, But I think that this one has something to it, particularly when we understand neoclassical economics as normal science, as the dominant paradigm, it's uh, several of its sort of behaviors and the way it operates try, come alive, particularly that inability of two paradigms to converse with each other. And therefore, um, uh, the fact that people who sort of practice neoclassical economics and people who practice political economy really have very little common foundation with which to even start a conversation with each other. So the question of what is better uh, can't be answered by either of the practitioners of the two fields. Yeah, I, I, I really agree because the, uh, that's something I've 
I've been in a, a couple of different heterodox economics departments and I definitely found that the practitioners there, so the professors there, did have a hard time conversing with each other. And the and the department as a result wasn't such an, a, a kind and 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 like it was I felt like these departments were not so conducive for to dialogue. And and that might be one explanation that it that that several different heterodox economists cannot talk to each other because they have such different ways of seeing the economy, the world. Um, and I found it especially interesting in your presentation to say, okay, so perhaps one reason why economics is so successful, you mentioned one here, politics, but also this idea that it tries to deal with the anomalies, so the, the things that they don't answer, so behavioral economics answered one of those questions and then it slightly tweaks its its models. And so everyone kind of feels for a little bit, oh, well, it is dealing with these other questions that we need to answer. Um, and so it has a way of <clears throat> um, changing, um, mutating slightly in order to, to answer those questions. So that's not, then I've interpreted wrong here. No, 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 you're absolutely right. Um uh, the reason that neoclassical economics is so uh, has managed to survive for so long and remain dominant for so long is because it is pliable. It has managed to modify a lot of its um, results and implications, if not the fundamental axioms. The fundamental axioms perhaps are the same or at least the fundamental sort of method or unit of analysis remains the same. So we know that despite all of the ways in which it has been morphed over time, the individual is still the unit of analysis and the equilibrium is still a framework that guides analysis. Now, there can be a whole host of methods, there can be a whole host of modifications that are applied to the behavior of economic agents. You can bring in, as I said, incompleteness of information, incompleteness of markets, you can bring in market power, but the analysis remains rooted in the individual economic agent and the interaction of these individual economic agents is able to give us a picture of the economy as a whole. Uh, and that picture is rooted in the framework of equilibrium. Uh, so there are certain things that remain perhaps stable over time, but a lot of the outer core in a way has been modified to better explain um, the real world. Um, and so that pliability, that ability of neoclassical economics to undergo modifications in response to anomalies is perhaps why uh, it continues to be this, you know, all pervasive dominant um, school of thought. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Could, could you tell us about the most recent project you're working on? I'm thinking about this book that you were telling me about. Uh, so that book is just a dream as of now. But uh, um, so currently what I'm working on is theories of uh, petty commodity production. Now, uh, let me tell you what that really means. So, I mean, this is really coming from my dissatisfaction with heterodox economics. So, I mean, we have talked about neoclassical economics and its inability to uh, 
explain the real world. But let's face it, heterodox economics as well, uh, all major strands of heterodox economics have really emerged from the global north. And uh, the the sort of uh, scholars who, who gave us these sort of really powerful schools of thought, they are powerful, no denying that. But these scholars were located in the global north. They The reality that they were looking at from which they were building their abstractions was the reality of the global north. Which means that many of their abstractions, many of their theories, their models are not quite easily applicable to the global south. And uh, like my work is in Marxist political economy. Marx himself was very much looking at the economy of that changing economy of England and Western Europe in particular, when he was coming up with this abstraction of, you know, capitalist development, the capital relation, uh, and really the picture that he creates is of this large-scale capital, uh, which is able to exploit this doubly free labor, um, who are free from the ownership of means of production and they are free to work for who, whichever employer they wish to work for. Uh, so that large capital is able to exploit labor to uh, produce commodities, accumulate surplus value and then reinvest it. And this is essentially the, the expanding circuit of capital that capitalist economies are always growing because in order to uh, compete with each other, capitalists are always investing and they are innovating and this is why technological innovation is such a central feature of capitalist economies. Well, all of this was really what was going on in England and Western Europe and sure, I mean, this kind of capitalist development uh, uh, we see in the offshoots of England, so North America, Australia, etc. and also in like just a small handful of countries outside of the global north. So, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, but for much of the global south, that kind of capitalist development hasn't taken place. And therefore, that abstraction as well, that level of abstraction of that capital relation, that big capital and large number of doubly free workers, uh, that also doesn't really describe our economies. The Indian economy in particular is dominated by self-employed people and by very, very, very small enterprises, a lot of which are actually family run. Uh, and this is a very interesting category to try to come at from the political economy perspective, um, because as I said, that distinct sort of separation of big capital and labor is not there. In fact, what you have is the embodiment of both capital and labor in the same entity. Uh, and that is what petty commodity production is, is the same entity being both the provider of labor power, as well as the source of that petty capital with which you start the production process. And um, so my, my work currently is really trying to understand uh, you know, self-employment, very small business, family-led enterprises from a Marxist political economy perspective through the framing of um, petty commodity production, but also other uh, frameworks. So, for example, uh, while petty commodity production has been written about by Henry Bernstein at SOAS and by Barbara Harris-White at Oxford, uh, there is another theorization, which is by Kalyan Sanyal, 
who was at the University of Calcutta, uh, who is no longer alive, but he um, has come up with a very powerful characterization of what he calls the need economy or an, the the space of non-capital, which is essentially this this large segment of our economy, which is motivated by survival and by the principle of need rather than accumulation, which is what drives the capital, uh, the large capital, capitalist economy. Um, and, and that has also been a sort of very powerful frame with which to try to understand um, self-employment, petty commodity production. Uh, so really what I what I'm hoping to do is to do some more fieldwork because I really so one of the things why one of the reasons why heterodox economics uh, is a necessary counter to neoclassical economics is also because it allows for methodological pluralism and diversity. Uh, and that is actually quite important. Economics is um able to do some methods really well, but it really does not give enough space to alternative methods, which are as important to understand the real world as, you know, the, the methods that are dominant. So um, I want to approach this question through fieldwork, through uh, primary research, both quantitative and qualitative, to really, again, try to understand what, what this petty commodity production is, what is it motivated by, how does it morph or grow over time, what are the mechanisms for growth, is it expanding, is it multiplying, is it staying the same, what are the motivations of the people who are engaged in this kind of work, really, um, yeah. <clears throat> Very excited to see that book, that's great, um, and it's uh, really great to see you um, continued this tradition in India to go out into the field and ask, you know, people, survey people about how they live their lives, how they make ends meet and so on. I mean, that this is a, a long tradition in India, which is um, research that's really been a, a huge contribution, contribution to understanding economic development in India. So fantastic. So the last question I have for you today is about this project you have with some of your um, colleagues at uh, your university, um, notably Alex Thomas, um, to, to start an Indian Society of Historians of Economic Thought, which, of course, is very close to my own heart. But I think our listeners here would also be very excited to hear about what that project's about and how, how far you've come. Uh, so this is really, um, I mean, this is Alex's brainchild for sure. Uh, but uh, this is a, a few of us who have sort of come together from a number of different universities, from uh, Jindal Global University, University of Hyderabad, and a couple of us from Azim Premji University. Um, so we have sort of come together to um, initiate what we hope to be a uh, platform to encourage the study of history of economic thought in India, because we find that there is actually very little emphasis on history of economic thought proper in India. Uh, and we want to sort of take the initiative to bring in young scholars into this um, subfield within economics, because it's important, right? Uh, we, I, I don't think that we can talk about uh, heterodox economics as a challenge to neoclassical economics, or we can talk about pluralism within economics without really understanding 
the history of economic thought uh, and the multiple strands of thought in economics over time. Um, so what we are trying to do is to create this Indian society for the history of economic thought, which we hope will um, both um, facilitate and encourage the teaching of HET in Indian universities at the undergraduate graduate level and also build young scholars who will be able to undertake research within HET. So currently HET instruction and research are both solely lacking. Uh, we don't quite um, have that many instructors who know how to teach HET, what are some of the, the tools that you can use to teach HET. Uh, we don't have as much sort of, uh, you know, widespread knowledge about how to conduct HET research. What, how, how can that research be undertaken? How can you pose research questions within HET? And what kind of evidence do you need to uh, support your uh, research um, question, etc.? Uh, so really, the, the goal for us is to provide uh, resources, training for teachers and for young scholars to sort of come up with conferences, seminars, workshops for both teachers and students to uh, sort of improve both the teaching and research uh, around HET. Um, we have done a couple of events so far. So there was a one day conference on the history of economic thought at the Madras Institute of Development Studies back in November. And we are going to be going back there in uh, back in uh, May, I'm sorry. And we're going back there in November to do a three day event again for uh, sort of teachers of HET um, to sort of uh, assemble the necessary tools to start teaching at the undergrad level. Uh, there's a conference that's uh, going to happen very soon at Flame University in Pune, which will be entirely around the work of Adam Smith. Um, and uh, in the past, we've also done sort of uh, conferences on, uh, for example, scholars like Piero Schraffa, uh, etc. So really, the idea is to create an environment and uh, enabling resources for teachers, young scholars, students to really get into HET uh, with a global mindset, right? And uh, yeah, just dig into this kind of work. Yeah, and it was exciting to see, you know, you had managed to get 80 participants at your History of Economic Thought conference in Bangalore in late August, right? And a lot of those students were, of course, or a lot of the participants, sorry, were students. There were some bachelor students, some master students, um, and not so many PhD students. And it was quite an interesting change um, for me to see that, whereas here in Europe, it's mostly um, PhD students and then and, and and higher up. And it was, you could tell that there was some kind of movement um, in India at the moment to, to really push um, and support students to go into this very um, small subfield of, of economics. And some of the the presentations we saw were, were were very promising, you know, and hopefully they'll find PhD positions. Oh. Right. So, yeah, actually this conference, which uh, took place in August 2023 for, I mean, and of course, uh, Maria, we were so happy to have you there. Um, that 
was perhaps the first conference solely dedicated to the history of economic thought in India. Um, and uh, it, as, as you uh, very kindly said, we had very sort of uh, successful participation from a number of young scholars. And by young, we mean undergraduates and sort of students who are pursuing their masters, right? As, as you said, not, not necessarily PhD students. So the idea really is to get people into this young and to start developing an appetite for this kind of work. Um, and uh, really the idea, as, as you mentioned, was to encourage students through constructive feedback um, to a, show them how this work can be done and also to give them actually constructive feel, feedback on how to improve their existing work. Um, and again, the, the credit for this is largely to Alex Thomas, my colleague at Azim Premji University, who feels very strongly about the fact that we should not pull each other down. Uh, we should be uh, raising each other up and uh, supporting each other through, uh, you know, as much... Uh, substantive uh, feedback as uh, possible yeah yeah and it was done extremely well I mean I was really impressed to see the kinds of the way that the older scholars um, interacted with the younger scholars who were clearly presenting something that was very much at the beginning and by people that <clears throat> didn't have much training yet or or any training at all in history economics and yet um, there was really great feedback given to these young scholars in an environment where I think a lot of those young scholars felt um, felt nervous for sure, but they were also felt encouraged to speak and felt like their voice had a had a place and 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 had worth. So, um, and I, both my colleague and I, François Alisson, who came for that conference, we were so impressed when we got an email from Alex Thomas before about chairing and how there were like four rules about how you chaired. And one of them was this, you know, we are here to pull each other up, as you said, and, and, and so we need to encourage constructive feedback in a, in a kind way. And it, he, well, the words he used Alex Thomas were very well done. And, and I think it was um kind of set the tone even before we arrived, you know, we landed in Bangalore and, and got to this um, on campus. So, Definitely something I'm going to keep in my back pocket for the next time I <clears throat> I organize something. Um, and I, yeah, I really, as I've said before, I congratulate you on a very, very successful, successful conference. Um, thank you so much for spending the time with me today, chatting about your previous work and your, um, your future projects. And I'm going to stay tuned very closely to this Indian Society for History of Economic Thought. And hopefully we'll get this special issue on the history of Indian economic thought um, going soon as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.